it's interesting to see because you know everything you write for CPH has to go through doctrinal review. It's very interesting to see who your doctrinal reviewer is. It's supposed to be anonymous. Um, although the best part was we've had former members who really didn't like me. I, lo and behold, they were doctrinal reviewers for CPH. Yeah. So I wrote this book on resurrection called Fusion Resurrections, but in there I said that ordination was a sacrament and it didn't get caught by doctrinal review. Now it's published. If you want that book, go ahead. You can buy it. And CPH officially endorses everything in it. So there you go. Um, the stuff you can do in the Synod. Okay. Um, I want to give you this because it's fun. So three, four, five. There you go. Pass those around. Meet our friend. She's Catholic. We love her. <laughs> She'll like this picture. That's exactly right. That would be great. Let me give you two and I'll... Uh, there you go. Your stuff? Well, it should have listened to me. No, it didn't. Okay. Um, she's coming. She's coming. She's coming. There you go. This was found on a uh, actually on an Episcopal website um, for a church near Yale Divinity School. Great, great church. Um, and they are they are sort of your classic postmodern liturgical congregation. And you see that in here. I mean, this is great. Worship like it's 1099. That's, I wish I would have thought of that. Uh, chant, incense, candlelight. You should just, you know, go actually Google up Christ Church 84 Broadway. And uh, you can look at some of their pictures. Their Easter vigil is stunning. And it's your classic Anglican or Episcopal church, which is the seating is sort of in choir. Um, but to see it then all candlelight is really remarkable. Kirby found it. It's, it. it's near Yale Divinity School. Kirby found it. So if you like it, thank me. If you hate it, right there. Uh, and remember, um, you know, don't get, don't get bent by, uh, by mass. Mass is the term the Lutheran confessions use. So um, that, that was our term before it was the Episcopal's term. Um, but there you go. Solemn high mass. That means it's chanted. Um, and then Compline at 9 o'clock. So, uh, yeah, I wish I would have thought of that. But that's what, if you're... If you're, you know, um, well, uh, if you're a postmodern, this appeals to you. What do you see in this picture, other than the incense? What's your initial reaction to this? It's very dramatic. Uh, Yes, otherworldly, and and keep going, because I'll tell you what came to mind for me. When I first saw it, I thought, that looks mysterious, because you can't quite see what's behind the smoke. You don't quite know where this person is at. Um, it, it does look otherworldly. Remember what it says about heaven, what will heaven be like in Revelation you know, 11 and 12 and, and, and following there. Heaven will be you know, one great Eucharist. And what does it say the prayers of the saints are like? The prayers of the saints rise up from under the altar. And, like incense, exactly. So this should sort of trans... Uh, you know, transport your mind at least, and your heart hopefully, uh, to the heavenly realm. So, anything else you notice in the picture? Some of you may hate it, and that's okay. Some of you may love it, and there are some of you who aren't going to care a whole lot. Um, oh yeah. That's the way it's supposed to be swung. We, 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 have the, we use the starter version. Um, like when you get a bike with tricycles, that's kind of what we do right now. Um, it is interesting. You know, we've, we've said... Um, well, two things. One is the incense is not nearly as noticeable in this space as it was in that space. 
because the ceiling is so much higher and also the ventilation is different. So the movement of the air is very different. In fact, when the air is on, and I don't know what it's like with the heat, it may be the same thing, but when the air is on, it moves from lectern side to pulpit side. And we, this is, we practice this. We want to know where it goes. So it's lectern to pulpit. Um, so if you kind of sit back lectern side, you may not smell it at all. Um, but we do, just so you know what we do, you know the sensor has, it's a large sensor, and you should put about four coals in it. And the coals look just like coals you'd put on your barbecue. And you light those and they get going, and then you put incense on top of each coal, and there's a prayer that goes with that. Uh, what we've started to do is we use one coal, and we, we literally use about two grains of incense. So it's just enough to get smoke for about 10 seconds, but not enough that it fills the room and not enough that people can smell it and sort of get bent by it. Um, and I do think for some people it is very much an allergic reaction, although I will say this, the stuff we buy is hypoallergenic, and as a, as a guy said to me at Wheaton Religious, this is what they use in nursing homes and hospitals. You're like, they use this kind of incense in a nursing home and a hospital. And so partly, you know, um, we try our best to be sensitive to that. At the same time, I do think some people react just by the mere sight of it. Um, we had all the kids down here. We had about 30 kids for pastor chat. And we, as I said, we're going to blaze this incense up. And we, it was smoky. Not one kid started coughing. Not one kid. Now, here's the funny thing. The question is, are really all those kids not allergic to incense? Or do they have a different set of presuppositions, which may influence our reaction? So anyways, uh, it is mysterious. It is, what's that? Yeah. Good thing when we all get to heaven, we won't have colds or coughs or, in, or allergies. Um, but uh, there you go. I've got, I've got something planned for Sunday morning Bible study. I'm not going to tell you because then you're going to blow it. But it's going to be great. You all ought to come when we talk about incense. Believe me, none of you will get sick, I promise. Go ahead. I think he's an acolyte because he's not wearing a stole. Remember, the mark of the ministry is not by wearing a cassock and a surplus. The mark of the ministry is to wear a stole. Exactly, yeah. As do ours. Um, when we used acolytes over there you know, all the time, we actually went out and bought them those short surpluses, the white surplus. Okay, everybody okay? Yes. Yep, it's Psalm 141, um, and it's also in the evening prayer liturgy. You remember, 141. Well, in Revelation, it's all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so there you go. Any questions? Okay, I want to show you a quick video. How many of you read for this week? Thank you. How many of you are lying right now? Oh, good, okay, at least one of you. Absolve you of all your sins. Okay, uh, where's Mary? Not you, although I love you. Mary 1 and Mary 2. Mary, will you just man the speaker? Also, can you dim these lights just a little? Yeah, can you woman the speaker? Sorry. These are the ones I'm, yeah, there you go. Okay, now, obviously, this week was uh, St. Clair of Assisi. I'm very fond of St. Clair because we named our daughter after her. What's, pull the drape down. Okay, it's like being at home. Abby yells, and I do whatever she wants. <laughs> Abby says jump, and I say how high. Okay, so um, I'm very fond of St. Clair. 
um, because our daughter is named after her. Um, do you know, what do you know about St. Clair? Just kind of off the top of your head. Don't give me any deep stuff from the book, but just what do you know about her? Oh, that's good. Lived in Assisi, yeah? Gorgeous town. I, w- I do want to show you a video, though. Uh, the, the, the nuns of St. Clair are called the Poor Clares. Why are they called the Poor Clares? Took a vow of poverty, exactly. So I want to show you a video. Now, this got a little jammed up here. A video of these Poor Clare nuns. It's about three minutes long or four minutes long, but this will give you a sense of what their life is all about, and then we will talk about it, and we'll talk about the book, okay? That could either be very short or very long. Um, Wow. Well, here's what I'm going to do. How many of you are editors in a former life? Anybody? I've got to send my dissertation in. It's right here. Within the next, like, four days, it's about 290 pages. Would anybody like to go through and just check the commas and periods for me? So seriously, I'd pay somebody to do this. Well, see, that, that I don't have that much time on my hands. Uh, I may. I have one person sort of teed up, but if that person, I will know today if that's going to fall through or not. I'm actually serious. I'd love... Yep. Yes, she is. That's right. That's good. My wife has as well, but when kids are, like, screaming in the house, it's not as easy. I will let you know. Thank you. Um, Contemporary, best friends, and I know why it's not working. Have you ever seen National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation? Cousin Eddie just pulls up, and then the you-know-what was full. If it wasn't women, I'd tell you what was full. Uh... Mueller, forgive me. Hold on. Stay right there, though, because it's only going to work while you're standing there. I ask for the love of God to solemnly profess the form of life of the poor sisters of St. Clair, to persevere faithfully to the end, to follow for the whole time of my life, the poverty and humility of the Lord Jesus Christ and his most holy mother by living the gospel. We try to live as simply and poorly as possible, trusting in God to take care of all of our needs. The way I like to look on our vows, especially the vow of enclosure, um, most people think of the vows as limiting us or, you know, we have to give up everything, we can't do anything we want, we, we have no freedom of movement, we stay within the, the, our cloistered area, and it just looks like, you know, uh, being locked up and... and not being able to have anything uh, that would make you happier, <laughs> you know, that the world would have to offer and all, but then you're totally free. You're absolutely penniless for the rest of your life. You have nothing. You can claim nothing as your own, and it's such a, a feeling of freedom. We place our total confidence in God, then. That was the idea that St. Francis and St. Clair had. They gave him everything, and then they just trusted in his providence to take care of them, for the rest of their life, and he does so abundantly and through such generous, wonderful people. It's the same with the, our chastity. We're free to love the whole world. Sister Mary Christiana's mother was such a beautiful example of that. Their daughter no longer belongs just to them as their daughter, that she belongs to everyone now, that they, they're willing to sacrifice her because they feel that 
She belongs to the whole world. Sister belongs now to everyone, and her chastity does not make her cold and hard, and any of us, that it should make us all the more warm and loving because we have the whole world to love and to care for. When I entered, there's, there's always that bit of that selfish aspect of the spiritual. You just, you want to be with the Lord, you and the Lord, you and the Lord. And at a certain point, it, you start coming to the realization that you're not here for yourself and that you're, you're here for others. And then that kind of transforms into the, you're not here for you at all. You're here for him and everyone else. My sister has two little ones and a third one on the way. I love looking at her and comparing her and I and our vocations. As a mother has a baby, that selflessness is almost de demanded. Um, that baby needs, it needs everything. It cannot do anything for itself. Here, it's a little more difficult to reach that point because you don't have that right in front of your face in flesh and blood. It's, it's, it's a little more harder to draw it from yourself and to also realize that yours is something even more demanding than a mother with a child because you completely lose yourself for people whom you have never met, never seen, never even known, and will never see, meet or know, trying to take in others' struggles and things into myself and bring them to the Lord. It is definitely just more of a, the way I'm living my life and trying to um, live the gospel, the gospel of love, love of neighbor, charity, just within the sisters I have here and doing that as a prayer some see things, that's just the way the Lord speaks to them. Some hear things, that's the way the Lord speaks to them. But I found he likes to speak to me just in a silent presence, that he just lets me know he's there. And so I just have to let him know I'm here too. <laughs> Receive me, Lord, according to your promise, and I shall live. Let my hope in you not be. That, that we're good now. I'm glad you all see, saw that Joe Holm just sent me an email. Uh, if anybody would like to respond, feel free. Um, okay, well, <laughs> when you see a video like that, and I know it's not like living there, but when you see a video like that, what's your, when you use a dangerous word, what's your perception of monastic life? And especially of the poor Claris, but just in general, what's your perception of the monastic life? Good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, right, right. Good. Uh, good. So, uh, not been a good day. Uh, can you? Can somebody fill me up a little coffee? Thank you. I'll probably spill it all over. So, what do the what do nuns and monks do all day? Some of them um, are not cloistered. So, cloister means you know you live at a monastery and you sort of stay there all day. If you've ever seen, uh, what's that movie that just came out? It was about the French monks. It was based on a book of gods and men. Go out and rent of gods and men. Phenomenal, phenomenal movie, phenomenal book. Um, thank you. Um, yes. Yep. Exactly. So like the Alexian brothers are nurses, male nurses usually. Um, Oftentimes, um, you know, the order of preachers, they go out and they serve congregations by preaching. Many brothers will be teachers, 
And some then um, are, are sort of restricted is the wrong word, but um, they relegate themselves to cloistered life. So if you were a cloistered nun, meaning you lived at the monastery and you didn't have any outside job, what would be your job all day? Yeah, it's, it's you know, St. Benedict, work and pray. That's our job. So where do you work? You would work within the monastic community. Um, and if you read, I think from St. Clair, what you noticed was that it said even when she was the head of that community, you remember what it said she did for the people who got ill? She took care of them. So, I mean, it's like, I mean, think of it this way. It's like being a stay-at-home mom. Right? It's like being a stay-at-home mom, which means you take care of the home. You take care of the community that lives there. Um, and, and then your main job is to pray not only for yourselves, but also to pray for the entire world. And nuns and, and monks and priests and all religious take very seriously the notion that you are somehow married to Christ and married to the church. Um, let me say two more things, then I'll, then I'll come back to you because there's a question here. Um, is monastic life increasing in numbers or decreasing in numbers right now? In, increasing. It's increasing. Well, uh, I think they say the same thing Lutherans do. Lutherans always say the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few, and then guys say, I can't get a call because there are no calling congregations, <laughs> right? So it's a little odd that we say we need all these, we need all these Lutheran pastors and we have you know, two or 3,000 pastors who serve in district offices and don't serve parishes. So it's not a pastor shortage. It's just we need to realign our duties. But um, if you look across the globe, there is, I think there is, there's been, of, of late at least, an increase in vocations to monastic life, to religious life, and to priestly life. Um, in fact, my dad, who teaches at Concordia Ann Arbor, they've got a, a community there. What's it called, Abby? Do you remember? The sister, Franciscan Sisters of Mary or something? Dominicans, that's right. They're Dominicans, so St. Dominic. And um, the average age is how old of a nun at that place? About 18 or 19 years old. When you think of nuns, what do you think of? Dying out. Yeah, exactly. About 18 or 19. In fact, they said, we bought this property in Ann Arbor, which is a very nice place. Within about three years of buying the property, they have to now build new buildings because they have so many nuns coming in to, to be formed to be a nun. Oh, yeah, I think, that's, I think that, that is... Well, I don't think it's, it's a direct result of not being able to find a job. But because of the economy, all hell's break. You do turn to the Lord, and people who maybe wouldn't have given the time to say to the Lord, what's, what's your will for me, are saying that, and the Lord is saying, become a priest, become a nun, become... Exactly. That's exactly right. Yes, go ahead. Oh, it's longer than that. It's much longer than that. It's um, yeah, it's about four years usually. Um, and so there are different stages. There's you know there's a there's a beginning stage where you come in and, and they say it's great. It's different than the Lutheran system in this way. In the Lutheran system, if you go to the seminary today, are they begging for students or not begging for students? They're begging because why? They got to pay the light bill. Right? So this year at the, at the Fort Wayne campus, and St. Louis is equally as bad from what I've heard, when I went to the seminary, in my class, there were about 100 students in my class, which was like the largest since 1970 when it was booming with students. Guess how many students, first-year students there were this year at Fort Wayne? 33. So here's the thing. If you've got it, but the faculty hasn't decreased. Because most of them have calls, and most of them are tenured, which means you can't fire them. 
So what happens is you're suddenly begging for students. One of the results is this new distance learning program that pastors are going through because if you can get cash for somebody to study over the Internet, that's better than not having any money at all, right? So, um, yes, so vocate, So there's a long period. But my point was, with Lutherans, we beg you to come. And I will admit, part of the trouble with having a money shortage is you'll take anybody and therefore there's not a proper discernment, discerning process, or sorting process. There are some people who aren't fit for religious life. And, and it's always a telltale sign when somebody says, and I've heard it before from guys, and I've often told them don't do it, when they say, I failed out of every other career, at least I can go to the seminary. Well, that, that is not, that's not, that doesn't bode well for the future. I say to guys, and this is something Pastor Bruzek sort of taught me to say, and I think it's the best thing, which is, a guy who says I want to go to the seminary or a woman who says I want to be a deaconess, what I often say is, you have to ask yourself if there really is nothing else in life you'd rather do. Because if there's any other, if there's any doubt in your mind, like maybe I want to work at the stock market or maybe I want to be a banker or maybe I want to renovate homes or whatever, you shouldn't do it. This is when Jesus says to people, follow me. And remember the one guy says, a very valid concern, my father just died, I've got to go bury him. And what does Jesus say? Let the dead bury their own dead. But if you want to be a disciple, come follow me. So it's full blast or it's nothing at all. But unfortunately, because of a money crunch, we've taken guys who are about 80% willing to do that. And, and here's, the, here's the classic example. What happens is the reason the distance education program is booming is not because guys are saying, i got to keep my day job at Walmart to pay for my family. What are they saying? I'll lose too much money on my home. What would Jesus say to that? Let the dead bury their own dead. Exactly. So, uh, but the point is, these, the nuns in Ann Arbor, at least, they're booming. In fact, they're building now a new monastery out in, I think, Colorado or, or someplace else out there. Um, and, and vocations to the priesthood are expanding. But part of it is, um, they're expanding with young people. And as we talked about before class, when young people are asking, if you go down to Wheaton College and say, after four years, where do most of you end up at church? Most people won't say, I end up at the generic Bible church or the generic this church. Where do they end up? Not, not everybody becomes a Catholic, so don't, it's not Roman Catholic, but where do most of them end up? Anglican or Episcopal. Now, why is that? Well, I, well <laughs> don't say it. She's a former Episcopal or Anglican. But no, but it's, it's much like, Here's the thing. Think if you were, now this is, a, this is a generational question, but imagine you were someone who's 17 years old, 18 years old, and your parents are 50-ish, so maybe they're on the tail end of the previous generation. If I said to my mom, I'm going to become Catholic, what would my mom say? We're Lutherans, for goodness sake. And I love my mom, and as my mom often says to me, you could do anything and I'd still love you, which isn't completely true, but, uh, you know, mothers can be very forgiving. But if you asked a mom of somebody who's in college today, would you want your kid to become Catholic? Most would say, absolutely not, at Wheaton College. Well, in some sense, becoming Anglican is sort of the middle way because you have enough connection to the evangelical church, the Protestant church. Um, you know, you can't be hired as a Catholic down here, but you can be hired as an Anglican which is very interesting because there are many Anglican churches that are more liturgical than Catholic churches. So that becomes sort of the halfway point. 
the point is vocations are increasing and what you find is they are young people who are very normal, who could have very successful careers, but they give all that up because they can't imagine doing anything else than being married to Christ in the church. Yes. Yeah. I, I think part of it is, I mean, I, I will admit, there is a great wealth of Hispanic Catholics in, like, West Chicago. I mean, they're, they're, and God bless them. In fact, I know the priest who was there, Father Burke Masters, who now works for the Diocese of Joliet. He was sensational there because he, he was young. He was, a col- he was an all-state college baseball player, so the young guys liked him. He was very normal, and he spoke fluent Spanish. So there is, or, or Trinity West Chicago, the Lutheran Church, they're going to need a new pastor because their guy can't speak Spanish. At some point, they will say, our mission or our outreach is to reach the Spanish-speaking people of West Chicago. So I think that's true. I think in different parts of the country, there's a rise in Hispanic folks. Frankly, I mean, it's, it's, all, it's not just Hispanics. It's everybody. Um, Africans, you know, Middle Easterners, kind of... I think in your I think in your area that probably is is truer than other places. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is great. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Because because at least for a long time, and partly it's because it's the people who filled it, just like it was for Lutheran pastors. But part of the reason, part of our perception was we viewed people who went into religious life as people who couldn't get married. Or quiet, or maybe, yeah, maybe weren't very social, or, you know, pick your thing. And what you found now is, it's people who could, this is a great thing, they could do anything in life. Yeah, she could be married, she could have kids, she could have a great job, she could do all these things. What better place for her to serve than in the church? Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Abby? Yeah. Yeah, it requires, um, even different than maybe the Lutheran system, it truly requires a great amount of discernment and maturity to say, not only I'm going to become a nun, but I can do it and get rid of all the dead eyes. Because like she, she basically had a campaign that said, I need, what was it? I was going to say about $20,000, and she said, I've got, they've given me one year to raise the money or get a job and come up with it. And she basically had a campaign where she said, I want to become a nun, I'm training for this. Please give me money. And guess what? The debt got paid off, and they took her in to become a nun. And she's very normal. I mean, she's the kind of person that most of you would say, hey, let's have her a women's Bible study. She's kind of fun, and she's, but she wants to become a nun. So what I want to show you is, and at least by the video, I was hoping to show you this a little bit too, becoming a nun or religious life doesn't mean it's boring. You might think it's boring, but there are lots of people that think it's fun. It doesn't mean, you know, somehow you're bound up and you're under, you know, somebody's thumb, you're under oppression. In fact, as she said, we're freed to do everything we want to do. And also that, um, that it's sort of antisocial. I mean, it's like an ongoing frat party, a religious frat party. That's what it's like. I mean, if you talk to, talk to priests and brothers, and I mean, they do everything from buy a PlayStation 3 to watch the football game to go and drink beer to, I mean, this is, these are guys who find... What you find in all of your friends on Facebook, they find, this is a jab at Facebook, they find in real people. <laughs> okay? Part of it is we have a misconception about what friendship is, and I'm so glad St. Clair talked about this, or Pope Benedict did. When you join a religious community, you have to redefine your friendships as face-to-face, as person-to-person. 
Um, it's humanity. That's what Jesus does. He takes a name and a face. So I think that's a valuable thing to think about. But you should, if anything, after all of this, you change your perception of maybe what religious life is like. Um, it isn't what you saw in you know, maybe movies or TV in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and even 80s. It's very different today. Um, yep. Yeah, in the temple, right. Yeah, not not this kind of presentation. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, and that's an interesting, I hadn't thought about that, and that's a very interesting thing. When you think about the, the Lutheran retreats and events that are very successful, I'll give you an example. St. John Men's Retreat, very successful. Um, doxology, what Pastor Nelson has gone to, very successful. Where do they always have their meetings? Catholic retreat centers. And that alone reveals something. Exactly. And it's not, don't even think about the word Catholic. Think about the word retreat. Now think about how foreign that is to Lutheran ears, to retreat. Right? They have a, they have a profound sense, and especially monastic communities, of what it is not only to talk and socialize, but to be quiet and pray and to listen. And, and partly... Um, I said to someone the other day, I said, one thing I will do very differently in my next parish is I will spend more time in prayer every day because for me now prayer is rushed and that's not the way it's supposed to be. And I said to this person, I said, um, I remember watching with all of you the Henry Nouwen video about a year ago or two years ago and I'm always struck by one thing he said. He said, I taught at Harvard and I taught people how to pray but I didn't have time to pray myself. And how hypocritical that is to say to all of you, I mean, yeah, I say to you, all of you tithe, and I do tithe myself, because that's, that's easy. You just do it. But prayer actually takes a lot of work. And one thing that I've noticed is life is so busy, and even the church, which is supposed to be a place of quiet and prayer and retreat, becomes just as busy as the world when you worry about all the things the church has to worry about. And so what we've lost is a sense of getting away. Remember what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus said he withdrew to a quiet place and prayed, right, and prayed. And so if we could learn something from someone like St. Clair, it could be uh, monastic life isn't all that bad, and two, you need time away to say your prayers, even if that means in the morning you give yourself 10 minutes to go to a different room. Yeah, Donna. Yep. Yep. Good. That is a, that is a fantastic question. Um, Anybody know how the Lutheran system works? How are how do pastors get paid? How do deaconesses get paid? How does that all work? Do you know? You know, because you all tithe. You all see the budget. Good. So what so what happens is we have we have a sort of system where um, there is, um, in theory, the synod is in charge. Um, and then, you know, individual congregations, and then, you know, pastors, so on and so forth. This is why, this is why you know, as we've talked about for, for months now, getting back to a biblical model of structure is so important. This is how it should be in theory. The synod should have sort of care and control over everything. But um, did any of you hear about this uh, campus ministry in, in Minnesota that just got axed? Did you hear about this? You actually should hear about this, and you should maybe make your voice heard, um, a fantastic campus ministry at 
Minnesota University, University of Minnesota, where they had put out about 30 guys into the ministry over the last 50 years. Those are stunning numbers. They were very liturgical. They had icons in their church. They had about 150 students coming every weekend. I mean, think about if you had 150. You can't get 150 students at a Concordia Chicago chapel service. I mean, you're lucky if you get 40 or 50 or 60 when the term gets going. So very successful. It's at the main campus. It's University of Lutheran Chapel on the main campus there. Yeah. So very good guy. Uh, John Pless, who now teaches at the seminary, taught at Valpo for a while. He was the chaplain there. Well, the district came in and basically said, the property belongs to us. We're going to sell it, knock it down, and build homes there, and you can find another place for your church. Because they're going to sell it to a developer who is going to build homes. That was the key. The key was the district president, who's just announced, lo and behold, after he makes this decision, guess what? He's retiring. Yeah. See, this was his last great act before he got out. He's the kind of guy who would never wear a clerical shirt and hates the liturgy. He's gone into a pastor who loves the liturgy. And guess what? Kids love the liturgy, too. And he said, I'm about 75. I know what worship is, and worship is not the liturgy. And the pastor says, well, I'm about 40, and i got 150 kids on a weekend. This is what they need. And by the way, yeah, you might be able to give us $30,000. That's what they offered, $30,000 to go find another church off campus. But he said, you know college students, you're not going to go to church off campus. If you got to drive five miles, would Claire drive five miles in Palo Alto? No. I mean, nobody would. She didn't have a car. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. So these people, but what happened was the synod couldn't stop it because the synod doesn't have, in actuality, control over parishes. The president couldn't stop it. And the president of the synod basically wrote a letter. Well, here's what you should know. The president of the synod asked for a meeting with the president of this district to talk about why he was doing it. The president of the district agreed. Matt Harrison left the country, and while he left the country, they signed the contract to sell the place. So welcome to the church, okay? It could be. That's, very, that's actually divine providence. Yeah, right. It's very, it's, very, it's very sad, but what it shows you is, at the end of the day, individual churches and districts manage everything. So what happens is, and this is the unfortunate thing about their positives and their negatives, the unfortunate thing about the way the Lutheran church is structured, and now I'm just talking financial, not, not spiritual governance, um, every congregation employs their own pastor, okay? So um, I can remember, and then there, there are some positives to that, which are congregations can employ pastors as they see that they have need. That's great. The negatives are the mentality is often who works for whom. I work for you. As one person said to me, you can't do that because you work for me. I said, well, I work for Jesus. No, you work for me because I pay your salary. Well, that's unfortunate. Unfortunately, that is kind of true because you do pay my salary. The way the Catholics are different is, this gets back, was it you who asked the question? The way they're different, this is a very long answer. Um, Yeah, they get assigned by a bishop who manages the finances of the diocese, and when a congregation, who does have to tithe, can't afford their pastor, he either gives them the money to do it, or he says, we'll combine you and I'll move the pastor someplace else. Or, for instance, a monastery a nunnery, all these places, are then funded by outside donations and by the diocese. 
If you're not tithing in the Catholic Church, the bishop comes to your service, which is never good. If the bishop shows up, one of the scariest moments of my ministry is when the bishop showed up here unannounced because that's never good, um, and it wasn't good. But if the bishop shows up, all bets are off. As a member? Well, no, but your church would be chastised, and at some point that church might close. Because it's a two-way street. The diocese isn't, isn't a, you know, an endless pit of money. Um, in addition to outside donations. Exactly. Exactly. And as you see on their, their major appeals, they, all, they often say, um, listen, selling cheese isn't going to keep our monastery heated. So we need something more. But that's the, that's the start. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. That's why, that's why I told you at the very beginning, oftentimes the motto is, and it's normally Benedictines, but they sort of, they sort of uh, assumed it as well, work and pray. Exactly right. What else did you notice about St. Clair? Anything, anything uh, that jumped out at you? I noticed a couple things. Yeah. Well, well, but but think about your own friendships. What do you guys talk about with your friends? What do you talk about? Families, good. Jobs. Children. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Beth. Good. Yep. So I'll give you an example. These nuns in Ann Arbor. Um, they do see themselves as being married to the church. In fact, they always take a wedding band. And on the day that they are consecrated, what do they wear? A white wedding dress. Exactly. And oftentimes, if it's a good nunnery, you have a big reception afterwards for all the new brides and grooms. Okay? Um, But the interesting thing is, I think they have similar conversations to all of you because all of them teach. All of them have young kids under their care. So when they get home at night and they're having dinner, what are they talking about? You should have seen what Billy did today. And now Billy kind of likes Sally. And Billy and Sally, really, I got to talk to Billy's mommy. And by the way, did you, who picked the grapes for the wine? Because this is really, really good. And have you said your prayers today? I mean, how, in some sense, how is that any different than the conversations you all have? It's not all that different. We have different responsibilities in life, but we all spend our time talking about our responsibilities. Yes. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Yep. Well, for I mean, a great example of that is Joe Holm. When his parents dropped him off, they dropped him off where? In a Catholic orphanage, right? When his mom dropped him off. But I think that that's a defining characteristic. And what you need to see is the freedom of that sort of life then allows you to, to spend time doing the things that are most important um, that other people normally don't have time for. The reason, the reason nuns were first brought about was because people didn't have time to pray, although they should, and people didn't have time to, to do acts of mercy and charity, and so people did them on their behalf. Um, and you shouldn't get sort of bothered by that. What you should think of is, thank God there are more people in the world doing this than just us. And I think you see that. If you just look at page 21, I mean, there's, there's lots of good stuff. And you're right, Pope Benedict didn't give us a whole lot on her, but partly that's because people know St. Clair. I mean, you didn't know Hildegard of Bingen, but you may know St. Clair. So there are things like her friendship, her charity, the way she cared for her nuns. She was the first to write a rule for nuns. That's very important. I'm going to give you her rule at the end of the day so you can look at it when you go home. But um, 
more than anything, what I'm stunned by is this sort of monastic, this monastic life frees people up to do what Jesus asks us to do. And what I'm not saying is being a monk or a nun or a priest is of more value in the kingdom than being a mom or a wife or having a full-time job. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is you don't have time to do all the things the church needs to do, and so there need to be people who do those on our behalf, especially acts of mercy and acts of charity. So you see here on page 21, first full paragraph, in the convent of San Damiano, and you know where that's at. That's that famous cross from St. Francis. You've seen this before. Claire practiced heroically the virtues that, she, that should distinguish every Christian. And you notice every Christian, not just monks and nuns. Humility, that's important. A spirit of piety, that means you try to say your prayers every day. Penitence, you confess your sins, you try to make wrongs right. And charity, which is, you know, sort of the highest version of love. And I, of course, I started thinking when I read this section about ubi caritas, where charity and love prevail, God himself is there. Although she was the superior, she wanted to serve the six sisters herself and joyfully subjected herself to the most menial tasks, like when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. In fact, charity overcomes all resistance And whoever loves joyfully performs every sacrifice. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he doesn't say, be a pushover, right? Her faith in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist was so great that twice a miracle happened. Simply by showing them the most blessed sacrament, bumped down a little bit, those who were at the point of attacking the convent of San Damiano and uh, and pillaging the city of Assisi, they just left. You ever seen the movie The Mission? You know, at the very end of the mission, what happens at the very end of the mission? They all get killed, but he comes walking out with the host. If you actually believe Jesus is in the bread and in the wine, not just in some spiritual evangelical sense, but body, blood, soul, and divinity, if Jesus is there, he can stop the enemy. Right? This is what, and here's the thing, this is what all of you believe as Lutherans. I mean, the Eucharist is everything. And then she goes on, you know, they go on to say all of this led to her canonization. Although if you look at, um, flip to the next page, the top of the next page. I'll start on the bottom of the previous, but keep it there. Truly this light, this is from uh, the Pope who canonized her. Truly this light was kept hidden in the cloistered life and outside the walls shone with gleaming rays. Claire, in fact, lay hidden, but her life was revealed to all. Claire was silent, but her fame was shouted out. And then Pope Benedict, and this is exactly how it is, dear friends. Those who change the world for the better are holy. They transform it permanently, instilling in it the energies that only love inspired by the gospel can elicit. The saints are humanity's great benefactors. Isn't that unbelievable? So this is the thing. What you should notice from Pope Benedict is all the verbs are passive, and that's good. But the most important thing is love inspired by divine grace given in the Eucharist is how the world is transformed. And St. Clair, maybe more than any other, uh, exemplifies that for, especially for women. Um, And so again, every week I want you to see yourself as trying to model what the saints have done. Last week it was mysticism, and that's a little more difficult, but if you can model anything, it is the only good revelation from God is one that's in the name of Jesus. 
This week it is, use the Eucharist as your starting point. If you have the Eucharist, your life is one that demands that we love. There's no other possible way to be a Christian than to live Eucharistically, to go from the altar to the world. And if you're not doing that, you have to ask yourself, am I really receiving the gifts the Eucharist intends to give? Because we say it every week. Strengthen us in true faith toward thee and in fervent love toward one another. And if we just walk out and say it's no big deal, then uh, we haven't received all the benefits of the Eucharist. And that's what you see in St. Clair, yes. Yeah. Yep, yep, exactly. Yes, exactly. And, and, you, and you begin to realize in life, and I mean, we've realized this in trying to sell a home where you know how much you're going to lose on it. <laughs> you realize in life, money isn't everything. It's not. It's not important. That doesn't mean you need to be a bad steward of your resources, or you can sort of be frivolous, or you can not take care of your family. What it means is, at the end of the day, divine protection is more important than anything else. And, and what I've tried to instill in all of you and hopefully it carries on, is just because you all aren't nuns doesn't mean you can't live a a monastic lifestyle, which means you say your prayers every day, you give generously, you care for those in need, and you realize at the end of the day, the key to a monastic life is God provides and I receive, period. And that's how we all should live. And when you sort of transform your paradigm to say, the most important thing is God gives and I receive, then everything else comes with that. You can pray easily. You can give 10% easily. You can care for the needy easily. You can love your spouse easily. Because at the end of the day, God is most important. That makes sense? I mean, this is, this is what life is all about. So, oh, yeah. Ex- yeah, yeah. <laughs> The presidential award. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. Yep. And some of the most, if you think back to your own life, this would be the last thing I'll say. I think if you think back to your own lives, some of the most beautiful acts of charity were the acts of charity that nobody ever knew about. I can still remember vividly my parents who, at the time, didn't have very much money, um, There was a young girl in the Lutheran school my dad was the principal at, and she, her mom got cancer, her dad lost lost his job, but they desperately wanted to send this kid to the Lutheran school, and my parents, I found this out years later, you know, wrote a $5,000 check to cover the tuition. Now, for my parents, $5,000 was a fortune in the late 80s when my dad's making $19,000 as a Lutheran school teacher, and that family never found out who wrote the check. So partly, I mean, that's the Christian life. It's, it's, you know, what you do in secret will be revealed, but it'll be revealed before the face of God, not before the face of man. Yeah. I know. Exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. Isn't that the most interesting? I used to think that was, sort of, that was sort of cliche to say God provides. I actually don't believe that anymore. He doesn't. No, it's not. And it, it can easily become that in, sometimes in the evangelical world. God provides, you know, God provides. Don't worry about paying your bills, God will provide. Well, no, you've got to be smart about it. Yeah, exactly. But at the end of the day, the Lord actually does provide, um, and he gives you more than you ever thought you might need. And that's a great, that's a great gift. He never lets you go. So, okay. Let's pray. And we'll come back next Friday, okay? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I will leave the rule of St. Clair on that table if you want one. It's about ten pages. It's actually kind of an interesting read, so if you want a copy, uh, grab it. If not, that's no big deal either.